You're tuned into another edition of World of Noise right here on X-Ray FM. This is a weekly show taking stock of the Portland music scene through interviews with the artists and people making music and supporting the community. My name's Bob Ham, and I'm a journalist and critic and your host for the hour. I wanted to start off today's show by sending out a note of thanks to everyone that helped support our spring membership drive over the past two weeks. It was one of the most successful drives that we've had in the six years that X-Ray has been on the air, and knowing that you are out there and listening means the world to us. So from all of us here at X-Ray, once again, thank you. Now, let's start the show. Twenty-five years ago, singer-songwriter Elliot Smith was just starting to make a name for himself as a solo artist. Until that point, he was best known as a member of the quartet Heat Miser. You could have rubbed me out fill in the blanks. You're the one that wants to be the one to thank. But my body up and left me. All I was waiting to be filled. But bubbling under the agitated, deeply felt rock that his band made was the heart of a troubadour that wanted to strip everything in his music down to the studs and express himself with nothing more than his voice and an acoustic guitar, which is what led Elliot Smith to put together his first solo album, Roman Candle. Recorded on a four-track in the basement of a friend's house, Roman Candle began his work that Elliot supposedly didn't even want to come out. He just wanted to use it as a demo to get a solo deal somewhere. But his friends at the label Cavity Search convinced him to release it in the summer of 1994. And it was around that same time that Elliot met Slim Moon, who was in charge of Kill Rockstars, a record label that had had some success up to that point with artists like Bikini Kill and Unwound, but wasn't really known for dealing in humble acoustic folk pop. Still, Slim was immediately taken with Elliot's solo material, and their friendship helped Elliot make the decision to release his second self-titled album with the label. That was released almost exactly a year after his debut. Keep in mind, Elliot Smith was a long way from the success he found in subsequent years through both his music appearing in the film Goodwill Hunting and grabbing an Oscar nomination, and then signing with a major label. As you'll hear in a minute, he had fans among his fellow musicians like John Doe of X, and he was beloved here in his hometown of Portland, but he was barely a blip on the radar of an indie music scene that was still coming down from the rush of grunge and the rise of the alternative nation. The years have, of course, been kind to Elliot's early work, and it is now regarded as some of his best. 
With all that in mind, and with the 25th anniversary of the release of Elliot's self-titled album, it seemed like the perfect time to pay tribute to this recording by speaking with Slim Mood, again the man who started Kill Rockstars and released this self-titled record back in 1995. Slim was kind enough to jump on the phone with me from his home in Nashville to talk about working with Elliot, the impact of the self-titled album, and watching one of his friends become one of the most adored singer-songwriters of the 90s and beyond. All of that on this week's edition of World of Noise. Stay tuned. Slim Moon, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today to talk about Elliot Smith. Oh, yeah, I'm really glad to be here, or glad to be on the show. Thank you. How did you come to meet Elliot for the first time? Um, uh, yeah, I um, I hadn't heard of him. I hadn't heard of the Heat Miser, but I was doing, you know, I, I did spoken word as a performance art starting in high school and had been doing that. So, um, I got asked by my friend, Tammy Watson, who was the singer of kill Sybil. And then later the ex later Sybil. And then later the executioners, she knew Carrie Ockrey who, and her first band goodness had just broken up and she was going on a solo tour of the West coast. And she'd invited a bunch of other solo artists to open for her or to tour with her. And uh, Tammy had suggested me, so I got invited on this tour, and then it turned out that um, Sean Krogan from Cracker Bash and Elliot Smith from Heatmiser were also on the tour. So everybody else was playing solo acoustic music and were like, it was a solo side gig from having a main band, and but I was, I guess I was still my solo side gig. I had Witchy Poo as my main band, but I was doing spoken word rather than acoustic music. Um, so then the first night of the tour was in Seattle and I did not watch Elliot's set. And then the, but I watched the Sean Krogan and the very first thing he said at the beginning of the set was anybody who missed Elliot's set really missed out. That was a dumb <laughs> thing you did. You should have watched. And I respected Sean, so the next night I made sure to see Elliot's set, and then and I was totally blown away. I was so blown away that I then went outside because I was the first, I was the first performer most nights on that tour. So I did my bit, and then Elliot played, and then I went out. I gra- I got his, I bought his CD from the table, went out to the tour van, and listened to the CD over and over for, for the rest of the show. So that night I didn't see anybody else play. I just saw Elliot. Um, cause then I just, I was just instantly obsessed with the, the Roman candle record. Wow. So that's how we met. Then, then we had a really good time on that tour. There was a lot of laughing and goofiness and that kind of inside joke thing that happens when you're with a group of people and, um, some really bad shows that were was clearly the booking agents getting a favor from, you know, some kind of like a so-called favor where you end up playing in a sports bar and there's nobody there except the sports bar regulars, you know, you can say, well, they got you a show, but right. um, it's almost worse than not ha- than having a night off, you know? How was he to just hang out with uh, on that tour? Oh yeah. He was super funny. He was, um, you know, he, I learned, 
right away that he knew a million songs because we did that whole thing of like hanging out in the green room, uh, playing songs for each other. And so out of that bunch, Carrie and Tammy and Sean and him, he's the, he was the one who was like, had that deep knowledge and could just bust out a Hank Williams song or, you know, anything else just knew a lot of songs that the other folks were just really punk rockers that knew their own stuff and maybe a few cover songs, you know? Um, so you got to listen to him sing a lot of songs and he was really, spo- you know, spontaneously funny and, and pretty quiet a lot of the time. And, and we talked a little bit about, where he was at in life in terms of with his creativity, you know, he was, he was super humble, like almost didn't like talking about like, well, I'm in this band and we've been together for a long time and we got signed to frontier, but then things didn't really work out with frontier. So we got Virgin, some other labels showed interest. So we got Virgin to, to buy out the frontier contract. And so now I guess we're going to have a major label record and, we're working on it right now, but he just didn't seem very excited about it. Oh, no. Either he was being humble, either he wasn't, you know, I didn't know him well enough. I couldn't tell either he was humble about it or he was embarrassed or he was just kind of over it. You know, um, he was much more interested in talking about his solo music, but mostly he just wanted to talk about just crack jokes, you know, and not talk about himself too much. That's kind of what he was like in the band. So at at that point, were you did you already have it in your head to try to get him to record something for Kill Rock Stars, or did you offer that up at some point? No, um, I, I, the place that Kill Rock Stars was at at that point was that we had done Unwound and Godhead Silo and. Um, and we had done like Bikini Kill and Heavens to Betsy. We had Mary Lou Lord, but I think I, w- I was still sort of seeing her as like this woman rocker, like not really Riot Girl, but kind of more lumped with them. So I felt like we sort of had two things going on, which was this like 90s guitar rock, you know, info- like just indie guitar rock like bands like Unwound and then we had with a with a heavy flavor to it because the Pacific Northwest was kind of like a heavier flavor than the guitar rock of a lot of the country except well the Touch and Go had some heavier stuff too um but but and then the Riot Girl thing so I felt like with Kill Rockstar's fans won't understand this it will we're not the best label to put out his music and I, you know, I told him so, but I also just really felt like we were really small. You know, we'd had some, some, what I thought of as luck with our early releases, but I didn't, we weren't, I still thought of it more as a dream to be a so-called real label um, at that point, rather than thinking of us as really actually being a real label that was really on the map with a known identity. Um, so, but he he wanted he was unhappy with cavity search didn't we didn't have long we didn't have a, much of a conversation about what what wasn't happy with cavity search i think it was just that they didn't really have national distribution i think he liked them as people or whatever but it just didn't really have national distribution and um he was interested in being on k records so 
so I did, when the tour was over, I took the Roman Candle record and I think he gave me some recordings of some new stuff and I gave them to Calvin and told him like, this guy's the real deal. You should really consider working with this guy. He wants to work with you. And Calvin kind of just, well, Calvin's very difficult to read. He gave me a perfunctory, okay, you know, uh, thanks kind of answer that I, I, I couldn't tell you if Calvin ever listened to it or not. You know, <laughs> um, I, I I'm not going to say he didn't listen to it. I'm just, I really just don't know. You know, so he, uh, Elliot went on with his life and was doing some Elliot Smith stuff. I mean, some heat miser stuff. And, um, he never heard back from Kay and I know he tried some other labels and nobody was showing the interest. So it evolved then to how about kill rock stars put out a single as like the stopgap before your next album comes out. Maybe that'll help attract the label interest that you're looking for. And, um, that way we could try out having a relationship because maybe it would work out for us to put out the album. I, I just, I still wasn't even set on, I was still not pitching like, Hey, we, we, you should let us put out your album because I didn't want to pitch that unless I was certain we could do a good job for it. And so then we, we did this, the, um, needle in the hay single. It's a junkie dream, makes you so uptight Yeah, it's Halloween tonight and every night See you scratch your skin, you sandpaper throat You're a symphony man with one f***ing gun How they beat you up week after week And when you grow up, you're gonna be a freak Want a violent girl who's not scared of anything. So then, then and only then did we decide to make an album together. And he was really like, he, he let me know. I can't remember if he called or, or emailed. Well, like AOL, chatting on AOL, there wasn't like instant message yet back then, except within AOL and, um, it was even before ICQ or whatever, but he either sent me an AOL message or he called me up and said, you know, I would just really rather work with you because we built a trust at that point And it seemed like trust and working with friends was very important to him at that stage. So I was like, okay, sure. You know, I'm, I can't guarantee for a hundred percent that we're the best option, but if trust and friendship is an important thing to you, then yes, we're the best. We've got that. You know, we built this relationship. So then we put out the the first, I mean, the, his second album, which was the first album with Dutch, which was the Elliot Smith album. How did people... Which was... Go ahead, please. 25 years ago. Oh, just that it's... um. This, is the, this happens to be the 25th anniversary, the 25-year anniversary of that record. How did people respond to that first single, the Needle in the Hay single? You know, I don't know. I can't remember specifically. Um, uh, I I do remember that the the truth is the self titled record initially was got a pretty lukewarm response. Um, rate, college radio was a little friendlier, but the press, like m- magazines, uh you know, and your younger readers may not realize how important, I mean, your y- younger listeners may not realize how important magazines were back then. <laughs> um, 
to that's how a lot of people discovered new music or heard you know heard about new music that they would then subsequently check out in other ways before uh, before buying um magazines just we got very very few reviews of the first album um and it was the one and only time really in the whole history of the record label that I called a bunch of editors personally instead of relying on the publicist um, to tell them like, you know, I basically said, this guy's the real deal. You're going to be bummed if you don't listen to it. Um, just don't blow it off just because he's a solo acoustic singer songwriter, which seems like not legitimately an indie rock thing to be. Um, Cause back then that really was pretty rare in, uh, indie label indie rock like a, s- a solo acoustic guy using his own name not using a cool name like palace or smog or sebado but just using his own name was was pretty rare and um so i don't know i it's possible because of it was solo acoustic that people didn't editors didn't even listen to it or maybe they listened to it and didn't think it was indie you know good enough to review but we we really had troubles getting press on that first record. But we did okay at college radio, not spectacular, but okay for a what is essentially a debut release because the first record I don't believe Roman Candle was sent to college radio. Um, uh, but you know who gave it a good re- who who it started who started to know about the record and really started to go bonkers for it and really got it was other other musicians, you know? Right. Um, like John Doe took him on tour and. We a little while after Elliot, I signed Danielle Howe. So then, at that point, I had three solo acoustic performers: Mary Lou Lord and Danielle Howe, and um, Elliot Smith. And so the three of them went on a tour, and um, Softies took Elliot on tour, and other artists started sort of name dropping him or calling up, showing interest in touring with him or helping him out. Lou Barlow was was helpful, was like, became a fan. So that's who were the really early adopters of Elliot Smith. These, and I was a little worried because sometimes you ha- there are artists who other artists love who never break through to a uh, more broad-based, regular, everyday consumer, a fan, you know? They just stay this, like a Townsend's aunt or something. They just sort of stay the secret of, of musicians, you know? So when you were discussing this record with him or discussing what he was doing as a solo artist, was there a sense that he was trying to sort of maintain this entity of sorts that is separate from Heat Miser and have these things be really raw and really sparse and acoustic like they were on the first couple of albums? Yeah. I mean, I feel like he hadn't, like, the, I feel like what he wanted in the conversations I had with him and, and the go back, sending back and forth, doing the sort of the, the A&R, the artist and repertoire job of being the record label. So he would send me songs and 
then later he'd have a different mix or he'd say, I don't want that one song on there on the record. After all, I want this other song that I just recorded. So in the back and forth about the song selection and the recording, um, it seemed, I, it never occurred to me that he had any other goal than a record that sounded pretty similar sonically to Roman Candle, except that he definitely wanted less tape hiss and he wanted more tracks to double the vocals and double guitar and have an occasional overdub. So he, you know, he recorded, I believe, eight track instead of four track. Um, but it didn't. I never got a glimmering until the third record, until Between the Bars, when, until later when he started sending me the music for Between the Bars and there was drums and bass on it. Um, I hadn't had a glimmering that he was going to ever expand the sound. I thought. Well, I mean, I really, really, really love my favorite thing in the world is a solo musician who with just their guitar or just their piano or just their ukulele or whatever their chosen instrument is um, can can really bring it where it's it's they're complete masters of the form. They're masters of their instrument. They're masters of the things that you can do solo that you can't do with a band. That's like the, the, the dynamics, the, the breathing, the speeding up and slowing down, um, the hearing the little teeny flourishes that you don't hear in a full band, uh, like the little squeak on an acoustic guitar or a little finger flourish. Or I just think that a great musician who can fully transport you playing just themselves is is the, the is far better than listening to a full band it's my favorite thing and i thought i i never knew until he added a band that he intended to do anything other than just that solo acoustic thing now when he presented this record to you it sounded like there was a little back and forth between you guys about you know sequencing and putting the record together how much of that how long did that go on and how much input did you feel like you had on that or did you pretty much leave things up to him on the Elliot Smith record it was it was just a little bit of a back and forth and the sequencing and the song selection was 100% him um between the bars by that time he had a publisher, like he had signed the publishing deal. And, um, and, and that one, so he had a, a budget from kill Rockstars was pretty broke and was just a, you know, really small back then. We didn't have very much recording budget to offer him. And the first record, while we loved it and felt, I thought it was basically the best thing we'd ever put out or very close. I, there, it hadn't sold well enough to, to sort of, in quotes, justify a budget for much of a recording budget for either or. Um, so he, I know, I'm pretty sure he got a recording budget from his publishing company and that helped. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth between the woman at his publishing company who had signed him and me and him about mixes and song selection but he was very stubborn and willful and sh very sure of his. I mean, uh, the back and forth was mostly because he wasn't, he wasn't sure what he wanted to pick. 
Um, he listened to our feedback, but it was absolutely his final choice. Like he wasn't going to let anybody else make decisions for him, even although he was going to listen to our feedback. And um, so there were a couple of songs on the record that, well, let me put it this way rather than say that there were a couple songs that didn't make the record that I was really sad. Didn't make the record. Um, but I, you know, I think the record's really great, and uh, it's, there's a good chance I was wrong about which songs to put on the record. Um, uh, but it, so there was a lot of back and forth, but it wasn't really that we had a say. It's just that he respected our opinion, and I'm absolutely sure he was playing those versions and songs for his friends, for everybody he respected. I don't, I, I don't think actually that Margaret and I got. I doubt that we were the people who he valued. I doubt he valued our opinion as much as he probably valued the opinion of some of his friends that he was playing music for. Um, other musicians, for instance. What what songs were you talking about that you wished ended up on the record that didn't? Um, you know, I, it's a little bit lost. I can't quite remember all of them, but I know that I want, I wished Angel in the Snow was on the record. I'd say make a perfect angel in the snow All crushed out on the way you are Better stop for it goes too far Don't and, uh... It was Angel in the Snow and one other, but I can't remember what the other one is. I'd have to go back and look. If I looked at the song listing of New Moon, maybe I could remember. Okay. So did he give you, in this process of you know hearing these songs and even being on that tour with him, did he give you any sense of what these songs were about? Because you know, reading up on this album and him, he seemed to reject an idea that many of these songs were written from personal experience. Um, you know, I always, I always believed that he has a lot of double meaning and a lot of, um, language and especially imagery that's open to interpretation. And, um, so I, I didn't really ask him whether, whether the, whether, what is the song literally about? Because I always believe that whatever it may or may not be literally about, it's also about all the other things that you could interpret into it. That he was that kind of songwriter that was like creating a rich environment for people to draw a lot of things from the songs or pour, or pour their own selves into the meaning of the songs. Um, so I, I never really had conversations with him about what song, what the songs were about. I overheard him have co- a few conversations with people about what the songs were about, but he was pretty cagey, I would say, like evasive. Um, that wasn't his favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, how did people here in the Northwest react to the record by, by your, through your recollection? Oh, yeah, God, I should say, you know, back then... Uh, there's, you know, ways to track sales and now to track streams has changed over time as 
me as technology and media have changed. But back at that time, 25 years ago, there's this thing called sound scan and it, it, it would show literally how much, how many copies of the CD had been sold in each store around the country. And then it would summarize the data per territory or per city. And, um, 75% of the sales, something like 75% of the sales of the self-titled record were in Portland. Like what I, sh I should have specified while he was struggling, while we were struggling to get attention in the rest of the country and struggling to get the press to notice him and only having a moderate success on college radio. Um, he was, a, he was rapidly becoming a favored son of Portland. You know, every, the secret was out in Portland and his, his audiences were growing quickly and people were hot to own that record in Portland. Okay. Yeah. Now, now there was a video made for one of the songs on the album for coming up roses. Uh, did you have a hand in that at all? Or do you remember anything about how that came together? Yeah, that was completely the publishing company had created a budget. I believe they spent as much on filming that video as I spent on my contribution to the recording of the whole album. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So the, um, the, the publishing company then therefore made up, came up with the whole plan. They were like, here's a director that we like to work with. Here's a, in order to have it be cheap, you should come to him to the town where he lives or where he is right now. And, He'll shoot in a day, and so I had nothing to do with it. And um, but I was I was fine to accept the help from the publishing company. Um, so I I had so little to do with it that I just sort of said, "Oh yeah, that's that's happening." They told me, I said, "Okay, that's happening." I got it, and then a couple weeks later, they sent me a video. I never even knew when he went down, you know. I'm a junkyard full of false stars And I don't need your permission To bury my love Under this bed like bone The moon is a city How was it then, you know, after Either Or was recorded and it came out and then... I think it was around that same time or a little bit after that people started really started paying attention to him because of the music that was tied up with the Gus Van Sant movie with, with Goodwill Hunting. Um, right. I mean, how was it to watch that trajectory happen in real time? Um, you know, it was really neat that Gus Van Sant put a bunch of songs in the movie and that was very exciting. We thought, oh, this will be a big boost. And then it was a little bit, it was a boost and, you know, his tour, like his next tour did well, did better. Um, people, you know, the press and radio paid a lot more attention. They, I mean, they paid a lot more attention when that record first came out and then they all, there was another boost of attention when the movie came out. Um, but but the movie was surprisingly much more successful than I think I expected, or I think we expected. And um, it was surprisingly more beloved uh, than 
we expected. And so the music, it was, I think it's a double whammy. It's like these, it, it exposed Elliot's music to a lot more people than would have organically gotten exposed to at that, at that stage. It also got their feelings about the movie all tied together with their feelings about the music. And um, that made them much more able and able to see, to like register the brilliance of the music. And, um, but, but yeah, I, I never knew beforehand what a big boost getting an Oscar nomination would make, you know? Um, I'd never been in a major label world where people were getting Oscar nominations. <laughs> so I had no idea. I had no idea when it was a complete shock and surprise when he got the Oscar nomination. And even then I thought, Oh, well, it's really cool that he's going to be on the Oscar show, but we know he's not going to win. And if he doesn't win, it really won't matter. It won't really won't have that much effect, but him being on the Oscar show and it being listed as an Oscar nominee that year, there's just a ton of people who, there's a ton of people out there who check out what's nominated to the Grammys and check out what's nominated to the Oscars and take that very seriously as a marker of what was worth paying attention to that year. And so that like the, 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 the movie was a bump in attention, but the Oscar nomination was almost a bigger bump than the movie initially was in the first place, you know? It was a, it was really a big deal. Drink up, baby, stay up all night with the things you could do. You won't, but you might. The potential you'll be that you'll never see. Did you get a sense? I mean, you worked with him on those two albums. You worked with him on the self-titled record and Either Or. And then for XO, the follow-up, he moved to a major label and like a pretty major label, DreamWorks, you know, uh, which was David Geffen's new project at the time. Um, I mean, did you, was that something that you thought? that you saw in him that that's where he wanted to go, that he wanted to be, you know, a big, for lack of a better term, star, or at least to be, you know, popular enough that to where he got at the, that those last years of his career. Um, No, I mean, he wanted people, you know, he wanted to make the music. He wanted to get exposed for it. He wanted to make a living, make music rather than, I mean, he wanted to get exposure. He wanted to have fans. He wanted to make, a living making music rather than have to do a, have a, some other kind of career. But he really wanted creative control. Like I feel I'm, I think he had some issues in with heat visor, whether with a, being in a band with other people or having a and R people, he was very frustrated with not having creative control in heat visor. And he really wanted creative control in his solo thing. Um, you know, and my understanding is that he chose, he wasn't that stoked about the coming up roses experience that he chose not to make 
videos for his initial dreams, DreamWorks releases. Um, and that, I, I mean, I, I'm sure that was a disappointment to DreamWorks and probably a, a fight, you know, a struggle. Uh, you know, I, I can only speculate, but in some cases, when a big company like that finds themselves working with an artist who won't do every single bit of promotion they want them to do. They sometimes cut the promotion budgets almost punitively. Um, and so I don't know if that happened, but I, if it did happen, I wouldn't be surprised, you know? Um, and, uh, but he, he was, so I think he was ambivalent. I think he wanted out of working with Frontier and that ended up being with him on Virgin and I think he wanted out of working with Virgin and that led to being with DreamWorks and um, uh, I bet you DreamWorks gave him a lot of creative control or the full creative control that he wanted but then I bet you that the, the, dis, the disagreement there was probably over promotion tactics but I don't know for sure that was like somebody else's you know, so there's other people you could interview who would know better right. what happened with Edger. Right. But even with, you know, as you said, like the movie and the Oscar nomination had a big boost in, you know, people paying attention to the records he did with, with you. Um, was that sort of, was that a similar thing sort of retroactively of the, the records that he did for DreamWorks and getting more attention, sort of feeding back into people finally paying attention to, you know, the self-titled album? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should also mention that Miss Misery got some, I, you know, I, I, I personally don't think that Miss Misery is as good of a song as, um, say between, uh, between the bars, <clears throat> but that's because that was a song that was unique to the, that was uniquely on the, um, soundtrack and wasn't just a licensed from our album. Then that was the song that, got that um was it capital i think the the anyways the the label that had the soundtrack chose to put miss misery out to radio and that did you know that did okay it got some play on a format of radio very different when when i've been talking about radio in this interview i've been talking about college radio right but miss miss misery got play got some play with the backing of a major label it got some play on a um, on like commercial AAA adult album alternative, and also some alternative radio, um, alternative commercial radio, and so that that was another boost. And I think that boost that for radio, radio always wants to believe wants to know that there's quote something going on, so the movie gave radio the confidence to play um, Miss Misery. And then the, 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 the middling success of Miss Misery, but at least there being a radio track record gave them the confidence to play songs off the DreamWorks debut. Right. Um, and then, but yeah, it, it, you, your question was like, did it retroactively help? You know, I think his success on DreamWorks retroactively helped bring attention to either or, but I think the main reason either or has been perennially 
popular and there's always new young people and young and old, actually, like there's always a lot of new people discovering either or and discovering Elliot and then, you know, buying the other records too. But the reason either or has been so popular is a because it's a great record and B because the film is enough of a cult classic that it's had a life of its own of people discovering it for the last uh, 20 years or 20 plus years, 25 years, you know? Um, so I think the, 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 the fact that that, that film has some life contribute has contributed a lot to the success of either or, and the DreamWorks success also contributed to more fans finding either or. Right. And I should say, you know, is, please. Oh, and then another thing is that eventually there were other syncs, like, you know, um, songs off of either or were used in other movies and were used in television commercials. And that also helped um, more people. But eventually word of mouth causes some, some records to just rise to the top in terms of, you know, you get a roommate at the, in the dorms and they tell you they play <laughs> their favorite music and you go, what's that? And then you discover it and then you tell your mom about it and, and you know, <laughs> or something. Right. And word just gets around. And I think that either our record is just such a great record that it has lived largely on um, word of mouth for a long time. Sure. But I mean, as you were saying, like, you know, uh, I think, yeah, boost like, you know, having Needle in the Hay in that Wes Anderson movie is probably a big deal. And another thing that you were talking about that, again, if any younger listeners don't understand, I mean, yes, this is being broadcast on a small sort of independent radio station. But, you know, back like 20 years ago, like getting a song on the radio was a big deal. And that really was a huge thing for any artist at that time. Nowadays, not so much the case, but back then, like that was, you know, that was, especially for an artist like Elliot would have been unheard of at that time. Right. It's sort of like if he had gotten on one of the top, one of the top 10 spot, most popular Spotify playlists of new music. Right. You know, if he was on the, that's, it was more like that than, um, than what as a, as a modern equivalent, it's more like being on a really big Spotify playlist. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of its impact. Yeah. Now, I asked this question not not looking for digging any dirt or any for any gossipy reasons, but just because, you know, it was such a publicized thing and it's been so, the, the, you know, the forward part of any conversation about Elliot Smith, especially in the last part of his life, was the fact that he was dealing with depression and dealing with some substance issues. But, you know, during the period where you were working with him, especially on that first self-titled record and doing that tour, I mean, was there any sense of that going on in his life or did you get any sense of him having that? side well you know he was quiet he was frustrated with some aspects of what was going on in his life like with he miser and with record labels and with maybe relationship breakups um or trouble you know not yet broken up or some stuff like that but but I think I took him more as quiet than I than depressed, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. I I thought of him more as quiet and humble than thinking of him as uh like clinically depressed or anything like that. First a mic, then a half second. 
girl that he takes around town She appears so as you said, uh, and as I said in the intro, this is the 25th anniversary of Elliot Smith, the album coming out. Um, I mean, yeah, what what uh, is there something that Kill Rockstars is going to do to to honor this in some way, or, or what do you, are you do you have any plans on that front that you can talk about? Yeah, we have a bunch of plans, some of which we can talk about. We're gonna we'll have a bunch of um, we'll have a bunch of. Uh, We've invited a lot of artists that we rec- that we um, respect to do cover versions of songs off that record, because I think I think that record sometimes gets overlooked. Um, maybe precisely, I think that record and Roman Candle get overlooked precisely just because they don't have drums and bass on them because they're just straight acoustic records. Um, and but the songwriting is really special and. And the production, even though the production's super lo-fi, uh, it's really special in that he he accomplishes some some things with doubling vocals or doubling guitar or it just has a really haunting sound quality to it um, that uh, he made the most of the like the lo-fi reality of the recording to create this really haunting sound. So. Uh, I believe those songs, though, are really special and that having people do covers of songs off that record, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of covers out there, say, Between the Bars um, or Say Yes, uh, but there's not, as, not nearly so many artists have covered songs off self-titled. So there'll be cover song, cover versions kind of being unveiled and put out there. Uh, on our label and on some other labels throughout the year. And then um, we will be doing a, a new version of the uh, self-titled record uh, to celebrate the 25 years, but we uh, I can't really say any details yet. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, before I let you go, since uh, you are in the driver's seat of Kill Rockstars once again, um, what does the rest of the year look like for the label, especially in this uh, really weird time that we're living in right now? Um, Did you say the rest of the year? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got a Maita album coming out in May, and uh, they've had two singles out already this year, and they'll have a third single out prior to that album coming out. And, you know, they're a Portland band. And um, we're going to do a bunch of singles of bands that we like, some of whom will do more with us later, and some of them will just be doing a sort of a side, doing a single with us because of the friendship. But they're, all, you know, happily on some other label for their bigger records. Um, and we're going to do some special reissues. Um, but we've only we've only signed one new artist who has a new album coming out this year, other than Maita, and I'm not I'm I can't. They're another Pacific Northwest band, but I can't reveal that yet. I see. <laughs> <laughs> but that'll come out in September, and um, so uh, just a lot of singles, and then a couple albums in September. Okay. Uh, in my ten Positive stuff to look forward to. How has it been for you? Like you stepped away from the label 
for a stretch and then came back to it. Um, how has that been for you transitioning back into this role of being in charge of Kill Rockstars once again? Um, yeah, I, you know, I left Kill Rockstars in 2006 and then I left the music business entirely in around 2011. So I was away from music for eight years, completely pursuing uh, ministry. I was going to be a, become a pastor. And then I did do that for a little bit. Um, and then, and I, I've had Lyme disease for about 15 years. And during that eight year stretch, I got a lot, I got sicker and sicker. And between the illness, there was a low point where I just couldn't continue with the ministry stuff. And, um, then then my doctors tried some new things and I got a lot better. And then coincidentally, right when I started getting quite a bit better, uh, Portia who had been running the label decided to take a different job. And so just as I had had a, I had invited her to take over the label for me 15 years earlier. I mean, 13 years earlier, she invited me to take over the label. Um, in both cases, because we were, it was like a dream job that we felt we couldn't say no to. And um, I'm, I guess that was long winded. But what, what I was going to say is that in the eight years I was gone, the music business changed so much. When I left the music business, it was gutted by downloads, gutted by piracy. And when I came back, it, it's having a new, re, re, you know, bump, uh, like a, another golden age or something, I think, but of streaming and vinyl. Uh, but the way you, the way music discovery happens now, the way people find out about music, choose what they're going to listen to, and people's listening habits has changed so much that it's been a steep learning curve for me the last six months, just learning how to do the business part. I feel, I feel like I get it sonically where people are at and what's good and what's interesting and what's exciting. Uh, of the music that's out there, but I don't, I, I have a lot, had a lot to learn about how to be a record label and how to sell music and how to expose music to people. Uh, and I feel like I still have a lot to learn. Is there a lot of concern now, especially with how, you know, the coronavirus and, and how everyone and all the venues are locked down, all the record stores are in lockdown about the long-term effects of that. And do you see, labels like yours and other independent labels still surviving through this whole thing. I imagine there's there there are ways, like you, you've been talking about doing live streaming stuff before we got in the, the mic, we were talking about that a bit, and I've seen a lot of labels doing that, like uh, somebody that you work with, uh, Rob Jones and Jealous Butcher is going to be doing one, uh, doing like a live DJ set, there's things like that, but what do you think the long-term effects of this period are going to be? Well, you know, I think a lot of labels and venues and bands and booking agents and promoters are at, live a pretty hand-to-mouth existence where the only way at any given time the bills get paid is that there's new money coming in from things that are happening. There's really no, no cushion. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, Rockstars had no cushion and we were about to, we w we had gotten ourselves in a bad cash flow situation. We were about to lay off most of our employees 
right when Elliot Smith got nominated for a Grammy, like that nomination, I mean, nominated for an Oscar, that nomination really came at just the right time so that we just continue, we were able to continue to grow instead of having to pull back and start over. Uh, so I think it's really going to hurt both baby, baby labels and venues and a- agents and promoters and artists uh, and even maybe some big ones who had a, a really tight, ca- tight cash flow situation. But, but Kill Rockstar is 20 years on, 30 years on, we're 29 years old, is not in quite that situation. Um, we can, you know, we make a lot more. The, the structure of how much are we making off of new releases and how much are we making off of our old releases is just a really different balance than it was once was. So I, we luckily are, will probably be able to weather it. Um, uh, but it is true that like, especially Amazon has had to concentrate so much on, um, you know, we still do a lot of physical business and not so much streaming. Um, some of our newer artists do well on streaming, but a lot of our older artists still sell a lot of CDs, sell a lot of vinyl. Amazon has quit purchasing music, physical music from distributors because they're concentrating on um, essential products. Uh, so it's not just music. It's like they're not buying books and they're not buying art and they're not buying macrame or whatever. Any, you know, they're what they're, cause they're totally concentrating on health stuff and food and, you know, essential products. So the, and macrame is a, I mean, Amazon's a huge store for us. A lot of our, a lot of people buy our records through Amazon and so that's going to hurt. It's going to, it's probably going to be a chunk of time when we have a lot less money coming in, but, um, but I'm not worried about us. I'm worried about some of the artists who there, if the Royal checks go down and they can't go on tour, they're going to have trouble paying the rent or paying their mortgage. And when I say artists, I mean the musicians, but I also mean graphic designers and then I'm worried about the, the venues. I'm worried about venues having to close. I'm worried about booking agents and, and promoters having to get day jobs because they, they with no bands on tour, they've got no money coming in. Um, you know, obviously people making music and people wanting to hear music and see music performed live and watch videos is never going to stop. The music business will be fine in a recovery, but it's some some people will probably have to give up and go out, get out of the business either temporarily or forever because of this, uh, the situation we're in, which is a damn shame. That is a damn shame. Well, Slim Moon, if anyone wants to hear any of the music on Kill Rockstars, killrockstars.bandcamp.com, and that includes the record we've been talking about today, Elliot Smith's self-titled record. Slim Moon, thank you so much for taking some time to talk. Great, thank you. I want to say, I just realized I didn't me- mention writers. And rock writers, you know, I think it's a damn shame that there's so much less w- long-form rock writing and reviews than there used to be. You know, I try not to be an old guy who just is like, it was better back in my day. <laughs> but I feel like we've, we've really lost something. Um, it's fine that people do a lot more music discovery by just listening to it because it's so accessible on the internet. But we've lost something not having those great curators that we trust doing record reviews and interviewing bands. We have so much less of that. And 
Um, so they're already hurting. And then this, uh, this um, COVID-19 debacle has put a lot of the magazines and the, the, the other media in, in jeopardy. And there's, so there's been a lot of layoffs of writers and that's just been really terrible. That's another damn shame. Well, as the writer sitting on this side of the phone call really appreciates that. So thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you again for being on the show, Sam. Thank you. It was great. Thank you again to Slim Moon of Kill Rockstars for being on the show today. If you want to keep track of what's going on at the label, killrockstars.com is the place to make that happen. And thank you for listening to the show. If you have any questions or comments for me about World of Noise, feel free to send me a note over at Twitter. The show can be found at at WONXRay, and I can be found at at Robert Ham Writer. And if you missed any part of the show or want to hear past episodes, head to xraypod.com to subscribe to the podcast edition, or pick us up wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week when I'll be bringing back Take 5, where I quiz a local artist about five songs that are important or influential to their work. This time around, the selector is Joel Shanahan, a producer who makes music under the name Auscultation. And I'll be speaking with friends and collaborators John Nekraz and Luke Wyland about their new project, Methods Body. That's all next week on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening. Say